Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you that you've seen fit to speak directly to us, to reveal your heart, to reveal yourself, to reveal the goodness of yourself, the lack of goodness in ourselves, our need for you. Throughout history, we see the story of a sinful people needing a righteous God to, to lead. As we read your word, help us to understand you better and understand ourselves better. Enlighten our souls to that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Chapter 6 in Joshua. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and mighty, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the trumpet's horn, then you will hear the sound of the trumpet. Then all the people will shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men who were walking before the priest were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpet continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have de devoted them you take a lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. 
As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But the two men, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all of the land. The word of God for the people of God. We've been building up to uh, the, the people of Israel entering into the promised land, um, them crossing the Jordan, them preparing themselves, and now is the moment that they um, attack the first city that God hands over to them. And there's a sense in which a lot more detail is given to kind of say, this is sort of how all these go. It's kind of a model, and then we, we look, and as we um, hear more of the conquest and more of entering the land. We, we remember it as it is God fighting for them and handing the, the city over to them. So we're going to uh, look at this, this famous story of the destruction of the walls of Jericho. Before we do, the, um, the, the portion of this that talks about the absolute destruction um, it is something that is a challenge for us. Uh, it, it is something often used to show why religion is poisonous and not great um, because um, we hear of the, um, the command to destroy old and young uh, men and women and to completely destroy everything and burn everything and raise the, the city. Uh, it, it has been accused that the scriptures, because of this sort of um, um, command, um, are, are um, commanding genocide, that what we see is a, um, ethnic warfare. And uh, there, there's this accusation that this is kind of excusing um, animosity and hatred. Uh, but we need to hear this within the context of the ancient Near East, we need to hear it in the context of the rest of Scripture. And so I want to take a little bit of time to look at kind of the claim of, you know, what is going on here? Because 
if that was what was being commanded, we should pause. We should hesitate, and we, we should listen. But I want to say, first off, is this is absolutely not saying um, non-Israelites are to be destroyed. It's not saying that it is going to be um, some sort of purification attack. How do we know that? Well, Rahab is brought in. There's never a point in the the scriptures that is saying Judaism is based on ethnic purity. The the people who are part of this group include different groups from Egypt. It is a a group of different people who've been brought into one family. And they go in to destroy not because there is a hatred of the other, but as we see in Deuteronomy as a command that this was a wicked and evil place, that the fullness of their evil has come up and God's judgment is going to be poured out on a group that has for generations falsely worshipped, has engaged in sexual perversion, has engaged in um, enslavement and oppression of other people, has engaged in the exploitation of the weak, has engaged in a a society of the, the strong on top having dominance over others. And all of this evil, all of this violence, all of this abuse of other people, God is going to use the Israelites to bring his justice and his judgment. So it's, it's not a hatred of others because we're going to see as God incorporates people into Israel from other nations, as God um, has them partnering with other Canaanites. So let me say a few things. Some is a lot of scholars point out to sort of the, 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 the type of rhetorical violence that takes place. And I, I think it, it, it is helpful to kind of see that this was the, the language that would have been used in uh, many of the cultures of the time, and we also use. Um, but in the context, we might kind of understand that when I say, man, I hope Alabama annihilates Auburn tomorrow, or I hope we obliterate Ole Miss, or, you know, you could just kind of add in, any. You know, as we do this, you know that it's not absolute annihilation. I mean, it's not... Usually, most sane people are not hoping for the harm of other um, people. You know, that, that is language. Though it, I, I find that kind of helpful, but at the same time, it was violence. It was real warfare. It was a real attack that was to taking place. But, but the amount and the extent within the context might not be quite as much. One of the things is we tend in our peace and security, we tend to not like the idea of a wrathful God of justice because we really haven't experienced the sort of violence and exploitation and oppression that the people in Canaan had, or for that matter, people in many other parts of our world have. I find it very helpful, um, Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who lived through the um, warfare and um, the horrible events and destruction and violence in the former Yugoslavia. And he writes this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. 
That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the reason from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. I think someone who is experienced and wants God's judgment shows us that it is love that comes in and says, I'm going to hold you to account for the way you have treated the other, the way you have treated people. And so what we see is very much God using the Israelites to bring about his judgment upon a wicked and evil people. I also find it very helpful, the the idea that it is a walled city. Uh, For us, we're just thinking of a city where people live. For a walled city at the time, most people would have lived in villages where they would have farmed and been out. This walled city would have been the center of power for the political and religious and military leaders. That is, the people who probably in many cases had oppressed their own populations and exploited them. I haven't seen too much on this, but I do think it's interesting that we might, in some circumstances, view them more as liberators than as some sort of ethnic genocide, that they were being used by God. A few other things just to remember. Nowhere else do we see Israel... um, Well, we don't see Israel just saying, okay, we can do this to other people, uh, but we are the good ones. It's not us versus them because later on when they have recognized their sin, they understand God uses Babylon and Assyria to bring God's justice on them. In other words, they're willing to say we're receiving the same thing that it's not just anything we do is okay and God is on our side. They recognize God's judgment on them using other nations as well. Moreover, never after this event do we hear where people are saying um, the same language or the same concept. In other words, when David goes and attacked the Philistines, he doesn't refer to Joshua and say, God commanded us to do this to all people. It was very much a specific group. And the other warfare that was taking place was never based on this. And most of the history of the church, the church fathers never kind of looked back and said, okay, therefore we need to go attack Romans. What they understood is what I think very much what we should understand is the point is how much evil and wickedness and sin we are to completely remove from our life. There is to be no compromise with sin in my own heart. There is to be no room for me to say any sort of idolatry, any sort of violence, any sort of thing against God is to have a little bit of room. Just as they were to destroy and wipe out everything, so my heart, I'm to wipe out all the sin. That's the way the church fathers would have looked at it. My final point was as we see these, we just 
uh, not final point of the sermon. Don't get excited. Final point of this bit is, you know, God, God um, we see this, and I think we have to come to the thing, do we really think that we are more merciful and loving than God? Do we really think that somehow we are in a better moral position than God? That at some point we have to say, I'm going to trust his goodness. Because the whole scope of the scriptures and the panorama that I see is a God who is loving and who is gracious, who will not tolerate evil and the, the, the oppression of other people and will call it to account, but is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. So we see that, and we see God's goodness even in his judgment, even in his... And so on to the narrative They get seven priests with trumpets, seven a number of perfection, a perfect number of priests going before the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's presence with them. And they go out and they march around and the people hear the the trumpets blowing, but they are not to say anything until they're told to shout. They circle around the city. And they have to be thinking, what good is this? I'm, I'm standing here. They're playing trumpet sounds. I'm trusting God. There's some doubt in me. I have to be saying, what is, what is this going to do to these massive walls? But I'm trusting God enough to go with my brothers and sisters and, and encircle this city. And I'm not even doing anything. I'm not even shouting at them. I'm not even saying, hey, we're, we're going to we're going to beat you up. We're, you know, it's just no taunts, anything. Though I imagine as they're walking back, I, maybe I've seen a little bit too much Monty Python, but I just imagine the people on the walls of Jericho shouting out you know, to them, whoa, what do you think you're doing to me? Oh, your mother is a hamster and your father smells like elderberries. Go away or I'll taunt you a second time. I don't know why the people in Jericho have a audacious French accent, but... Some of you are in the know. But anyway, they're, they're, they're going, and you know they have to just feel kind of ridiculous. We've circled around. We've blown some trumpets, and we're going to do this again tomorrow. And they go out, and they have to be looking at the armor of the soldiers and the spears of the soldiers and the warfare. And they're, they're thinking, we're not even bringing any siege weaponry. We're not doing anything. We're just obeying and trusting God. And this, what we're doing just does not seem like it's going to do anything. And they do that. And they go back home. And you, you know they have to be going to bed thinking, we're going to do the same tomorrow. I mean, I'm not seeing any lightning in the sky or anything. Is God really going to do something with this trust and obedience that just seems inconsequential? I mean, the people in Jericho don't even look scared. They're going on about their business because there's nothing we do that's intimidating them or telling them that God is about to act. And is he really going to do something using us? And they go again. They do this six days, completely not arbitrary. And then on the seventh day, God's people gather. And they gather around and they go around seven times, and then they are told to shout. And one of the things the writer of Joshua wants us to see is not that we're going to see this cataclysmic fall as the high point. 
if this was a movie, the big thing leading up is going to be the walls tumbling down. But for the writer, the big thing is obey God. God's fighting. It's not going to, that's, that's happened. Your part is to do what God says. Because when he says shout, and before the shout, we get a pause. And we get the instructions again, destroy everything. Don't leave anything standing. Keep your word to Rahab. Rahab. You're going to save her, and you're not going to destroy her. And you're going to do what I said to do. And then we return to the action, and they shout, and the walls crumble down. And it highlights our task is to trust a God who is the one who is fighting for us, who has promised to give the city to us, and just trust him and obey him even in obedience that seems to do nothing. And trusting in things that can't be seen, that he still uses that. And that's what he uses. On the seventh time, they go around. And do you not have to just kind of see this image of week in, week out of our lives, that daily we as believers go about our business before a world that is like an impregnable wall that celebrates violence, that celebrates power, that exploits, that oppresses, that is disobedient to God. And we go about our lives day in and day out, trusting God and obeying Him in ways that we have to look at the massive powers of the world around us and think, does my struggle to get the kids to church really have any impact? Does my attempt to pray when my mind is going in a hundred different directions and I'm trying to read scripture, but I'm thinking of all the things I have to do, is my struggle to just pray really have any outcome in this world? Does, does my attempt to be honest in work when there's others who kind of cut corners and do things and they seem to get rewarded, does my attempt to do the right thing really have an impact? Does, does my faithfulness in forgiving someone over and over and over, in, in the scheme of things, is that what God does and uses? And what we see in Joshua is, yes, this is very much our life, the day in, day out, just trusting and just obeying, not trusting in our strength and not trusting in our ability to say, okay, this strategy is not working. What we really need to do is get some catapults down there, maybe a Trojan horse, something where we're doing some work. But our task is day in and day out, obedience to God, trusting him as we go to him in prayer. Karl Barth said to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. I love that concept that as we pray and as we follow Christ in obedience, that those are the things God uses to bring about his kingdom, though they look as insignificant as circling around a walled city with trumpets. And once a week, we his people gather together and we raise our voices in a shout, praising him and worshiping him, remembering we have him present with us and that he is doing something, and in the people's praise, in God's word, his kingdom is being established. 
So we ask ourselves, how are we in our daily obedience and trust? Beyond our gathering on the seventh day when God does the work and it's evidence and we're with others and we're shouting, the day-to-day circling of Jericho, how is that going in your life? In many ways, we can kind of think to ourselves, well, I, you know, I feel this or I, I do this, but how, how might your coworkers, especially if you have folks you supervise, would they be surprised to see you worshiping this morning? He's a believer. She's a Christian. Would there be someone who knows us and the way we do things, would they be surprised? Would an unbeliever spending a day with us find anything that we do unusual I mean, we're, most of our life is like everyone else, but surely there's habits and patterns in our life that would send out strange because we are obeying a God who commands us to do things. Would our children, would those closest to us, be able to pick out things um, that don't quite measure up to what they're learning in Sunday school? Would, would they note things where we, we don't live quite as we ought? Do we live in obedience and trust? And more than that is the encouragement. Don't lose heart. Don't don't get tired in trusting and obeying, even when it doesn't seem to be any good, even when before the world it has to appear completely ridiculous, even when you feel you're being taunted and nothing is going to change. Jesus, our great high priest, went outside of the city where he, in his body, destroyed the dividing line of hostility, where he broke down the walls of division by dying on the cross, where he rose again and established his new kingdom. He is the one who is about to conquer the kingdoms and the cities of this world, and he offers amnesty just as Rahab received amnesty to all those who trust in him and who believe in him. And on the last day, there will be a great shout, and there will be a trumpet sound, and Babylon the great will have fallen, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Christ. The promised land will be fulfilled. We will enter into his kingdom of perfect justice and perfect peace. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Would you please stand and let us state what we believe through the words of the Apostles' Creed.